Hello and welcome once again to the Foundry Church Podcast. My name is Joseph. I'm the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. We are delighted that you're spending at least some of your week with us uh, on this message in this series that we've got going. This is week two of our current series called Mountains and Seas and Gardens and Roads, where we're taking a walk through all four Gospels and looking at them maybe from a different angle or in a different way than you may be used to. Uh, it's, it's been very cool, uh, the conversations we've been having in the office around this series, and we're very much looking forward to uh, hearing from you and, and kind of what this series means to you as we go. Uh, but right now, let's get into it. This is week one of Mountains, which is week two of the series. It's going to be a little confusing along the way, but it's going to be really good. Please enjoy this message from our lead pastor, Seth Kane. Hey guys, <laughs> welcome to the Foundry. Whether you're joining us in person or online, I'm so very glad you're here where we're all about a better you and a better world. My name is Seth and uh, we're here for another week and I'm glad you came back because after last week I was a bit nervous, but you're here, so thank you. It's like a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a lesson of grace that you've given to me uh, from last week. So anyways, so we're in this new series that we're calling Mountains. And what is it? It's a long mountains and seas and gardens and roads. That's what we're doing. Uh, and, and what we've been talking about is how uh, essentially the early Christians didn't really read the gospel, understand the gospel the way that we like go through it. Like they, they, they had a different approach to it. They didn't understand the gospels as four retellings of the same story. They understood the gospels as like four separate texts written to four different groups of people dealing with four sets of issues and problems based on historical circumstances, right? And so they did this like up until about the seventh century until kind of things got changed. And so what we talked about is how each gospel in writing to a specific issue is actually like addressing and answering a particular question, right? And so there's Matthew, which is how do we face change? Mark deals with uh, how do we deal with suffering? How do we move through suffering? John deals with how do we receive joy? And then Luke deals with how do we mature in service? And so when you like put these in order here, the, these four gospels this is, is like a, a four-part journey, a fourfold path that's intended to lead to deeper spiritual transformation, right? And this path is like, it's not just like one time we travel. This is like cyclical, and it happens in all various aspects of our lives, right? Um, but it keeps happening, and it, it's like we, we talked about how it's kind of built into a, a lot of other things in, the, in like creation. Like this is all part, like the seasons, right? You have fall and then winter and then spring and then summer. Like this is how this works. So we shouldn't be surprised if this was kind of built into how we look at and understand the Gospels. So we've established that Matthew is, uh, the question is, how do we face change? And we've talked about how the image, the key image, the metaphor in Matthew is the mountain. Isn't this a beautiful mountain over here, by the way? Let me move this into the light, and hopefully it doesn't fall or break. Now, you guys won't be able to see the TV. Is that in the way, Seth? Dang it. Come on, man. There you go. That's a little better. Now it's crooked, and all my, like, aesthetically... Uh, no, this is, this is going to be a problem for some people. Let me adjust it so that we don't, um, no? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job, Seth. That's what we expect. Um, just a little off. 
So we talked about how Matthew is written to this group of Messianic Jews that have moved to Antioch shortly after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. And we talked about how devastating this would be. We did like our, our brief summary last week, remember? Um, because the destruction of the temple wasn't just the destruction of a building. It was a destruction of like their identity, right? The, the, the temple was where was at the heart of, of who they were. It carried this great deal of significance. It, it's, it's not only that, but it's been like a holy place for the people for like thousands of years, okay? So just in case you didn't know this, the temple sat on Mount Moriah, and if you go back through like Jewish history, uh, most people believe that Mount Moriah was actually the place where Abraham was supposed to sacrifice Isaac, did you, did you know that? Like, this is actually where the temple was built. So there's like a long history going all the way back to Abraham and, and the almost near sacrifice of Isaac, right? This is where this thing would have happened. And so like a thousand years after Abraham, King David comes along and, and he comes to that same mountain, the same place where he builds this great city. You may have heard of it. It goes by the name of, they, they called it Jerusalem, which means the place of peace or a city of peace. That is Jerusalem. And then in the city of peace, uh, around 900 BCE, King Solomon comes in and he completes the first temple that sits on the peak of Mount Moriah. And then for centuries, it was believed that the Messiah would return to that place, to that place, to that temple. That's where the Messiah would return. In the 6th century BCE, the Babylonians come in and they destroy the city, they destroy the temple, and within 100 years, they're like rebuilding this temple and they call that the second temple. Keep moving forward, in the 4th and 3rd century, the Greco-Roman kings, they come in and they take over the temple. So again, it's exchanged hands, it's taken out of the the Jewish hands. Um, They they set up their own gods, their, their own idols, their own gods in the temple, like desecrating the temple. They had athletic competitions in the courtyard of the temple. Um, then moving further, closer to our timeline, in the, in the mid-2nd century, you have what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. You may have heard of this, which led to the Jewish people reclaiming and, and, and rededicating the temple. They had this whole like eight-day festival. You may have heard of it. It's called the Hanukkah, right, in 164 BC, BCE. Then in 63 BCE, Jerusalem and the temple was like absorbed into the Roman Empire. And then there's some few back and forth and fight to maintain the use and rights of the temple along the way, which eventually leads to the destruction of the temple in 70 CE, right? Like we talked about last week. We talked about the brutality that the Romans showed as they destroyed the temple and the the rivers of blood that ran down the temple steps, right? Here's the thing. Not only was this just violent and nasty, it was also intentional as to when the Romans did this because the day that they sacked the, the second temple in 70 CE was the was the like anniversary date of when the Babylonians sacked the first temple, right? Like this is like an extra, this is just like another jab to the heart for them. Like it was very intentional. So the the Romans were tired of how the Jewish people had been clinging to this holy place and, and they wanted to destroy everything to the point that there was nothing left that they could cling to. Like they're looking to completely demolish any hope of anything ever happening in this place again. Now, why are we getting this history lesson on the temple? That's a great question. Um, I just needed to fill some time. Uh, it's not, not really. It's, it's important. It's important to this. Because I want you to see how important the temple is to the Jewish people. Like how many generations, how many centuries they've been fighting for this place, defending this, how much faith they had to have to keep rebuilding, the deep, uh, how deep the significance of the temple had become ingrained into their culture, right? Like this is a, a very deep thing so that you understand 
how devastating it would have been for them to have their temple destroyed. It was their life for thousands of years, and it's been taken from them. So Matthew is, is writing this gospel a few years after the destruction of the temple in 70 CE. He's writing to these Jews who believed in Jesus, the Messianic Jews, who have now like evacuated like Jerusalem. They, they've moved 300 miles north of Jerusalem to the city of Antioch. So he's writing to this group of people who are at a time of deep crisis, a time of deep chaos. People who are asking, what do we do now? How do we face change? That's the question. And so Matthew's gospel, what you see in it, it's like, it's this gospel of endings and new beginnings. It's a message of hope, and it's a message of fresh, fresh promise in the face of great crisis. And the metaphor, the, the, mountain, uh, the metaphor of the mountain speaks to this. It speaks to the difficulty of the climb. It also speaks to, like, the security and permanence of a mountain, you know, like Mount Moriah that they kept trying to rebuild the temple on. It also speaks to what we learn about ourselves as we go through the struggle of attempting to climb a mountain. So today, I, I want to take a somewhat detailed look in the very first chapters of the book of Matthew to show you like how all of this shows up and to show you all the stuff that I think we might like miss as we read through this story from like Western eyes, okay? So, and then like, next week, we're going to look at like later in the book, we'll look at some of the bigger moments, some of the Passion Week stuff, Last Supper, Crucifixion, Resurrection, that sort of thing. But today, I just want to start in the very beginning of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1. So Matthew opens his book with the genealogy, right? We read this story at Christmas. You're familiar with it. Let me rephrase that. We skip over this story at Christmas, right? Yeah, that's what we do. Because there's not much there that we connect with. We don't connect with that very well. Um, so Matthew opens with this genealogy, and he's the, he, his book, his gospel, is the only one that has this genealogy. Luke has a genealogy, but it's not in chapter 3, and, it, and it's uh, less prominent, and it's actually like a whole different list of names, which is weird. So Matthew opens with a genealogy, and there's like three reasons he does this, okay? Three reasons he does this specifically for the Messianic Jews in Antioch, the ones who have just had their temple, their world, their life destroyed. One is he's attempting to remind them of the long list of like iconic ancestors that they've had. Like here's the big names in your history, the ones that you've descended from, the ones who have gone ahead of you, who have faced a tremendous loss and difficulty and yet still prevailed, right? He's trying to remind them that they are part of a great people who have overcome great adversity. The second reason I think he does this is because this genealogy emphasizes that there are times when there is a need to challenge the traditional structures of life and religion rather than maintaining them. This, for the people at the time, would have provided a profound sense of affirmation for where, they at, where they're at because they're trying to figure out what do we do without this system. Then the third thing is that this genealogy is absolutely packed with flawed, imperfect individuals, which would fly in the face of how the religious people understood that the, the coming of the Messiah. They believed that the Messiah would only come through this like, line of perfection, would only come through flawless behavior and adherence to, to, to ritual practice. And so to see this long list of flawed individuals, flawed people leading to the Messiah would be like kind of eye-opening for these people. 
right? Like, yeah, we're kind of a mess, but it, apparently it looks like God can work through the mess to like bring something good. So there's hope. And so you have to remember, we read this, and again, we go, yeah, we might be familiar with some of the stories, yeah, some of the big ones, that sort of thing. But when the people hear this or read this for the first time, when they're seeing all this written down, like, they would have known these people. This is family. They would have known these stories. They would have known these stories front and back. They would have known the success and failures of each person. They would have known the highs and the lows of each person, right? This is their heritage. This is their family, okay? So Matthew chapter 1, this gets, hold on to your seats. It's riveting. This is the genealogy of Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Yeah. Right? Are, are you not moved? Are you not entertained? Yeah, yeah. So we read this and we're like, okay, cool. But there's actually something quite powerful going on here. Like he kicks off the genealogy of Jesus with these two pillars of faith of the Jewish community. The great King David, this is a big deal. The great, and, and the great patriarch of the people, which is Abraham, right? This is Matthew saying to the people, this is who you are. Remember your heritage. Remember you come from a line of these incredible type of people. Next verse. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. A lot of fun again, right? A lot of fun. Abraham, the great patriarch of, of, of the faith, but also, if you know anything about Abraham, he's also kind of a mess, right? Like one of the big stories, of course, coming to the life of Abraham is when they were told that they would be pregnant, but his wife can't have a kid, so the wife takes his maidservant and has Abraham sleep with the maidservant, and she gets pregnant. His name's Ishmael, but then like, Sarah later gets pregnant, and she names that son Isaac, right? So it's kind of a mess because they didn't actually necessarily follow what God had for them to do. And then not only that, but Matthew points out that the fact that, that the lineage of Abraham, Abraham is running through Isaac is a big deal because Isaac is not the firstborn son. He's the secondborn son. So the fact that Isaac gets chosen rather than Ishmael flies in the face of the tribal tradition, the way of the tribe was that the eldest son got the inheritance. The younger son got little, if anything, at all. So all of a sudden, in these first two verses, you've got, remember the strength of the people you've come from. You've got, hey, like, there's a lack of perfection, and yet God still did something. And you've got this challenge to the, like, traditional thinking of the day. You see, like, this already... This is significant if you are these people and you're in this spot and you're looking for something. Verse, next verse, verse three. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram. Right? So here we have this like days of our lives drama in this story. If you know the story of, uh, of uh, Judah and Tamar. Uh, Judah had promised, uh, broke a promise to his daughter-in-law Tamar. Then to, Tamar tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her. She gets pregnant, has this baby through whom this lineage continues. So not only do we see, again, another mess of a situation, but also Matthew includes women in the ge genealogy, which would have been a huge deal, right? This is flying in the face of tradition. Matthew doesn't include just one woman in his genealogy. He includes four. Luke's genealogy includes no women, right? Matthew is doing something here. And so you can go through this whole long list of people, and it's kind of the same thing over and over. Matthew is sending a message. 
He's contradicting how the religious people thought the Messiah would come. He's breaking tradition. He's showing them this long list of people who are icons of their ancestry, but are also kind of a mess. It's like he's saying to them, look, look, if they can go through what they went through and they can still prevail, there is hope for you. If the Messiah can come through all of that mess, there is hope for you for you. If you are these Messianic Jews living in Antioch at the time, who've had their world shattered, wouldn't this be like a pretty powerful message? There's this terrible thing that's happened. How do we face change? Remember who you are. Remember where you've come from. Remember that there's others that have gone before you that have also gone through difficulty and survived. Also, know that you can do things differently. You don't have to keep operating according to the same systems, the systems that are already in place. You can chart a new path. And if the Savior of the world can come out of this mess of situations, like my guess is we can make it through as well. I mean, how many of us have gone through turmoil? I mean, like deep, life-changing turmoil. We go through stuff like that, and wouldn't it be nice to hear something like this? Yeah, you're really in a mess, and it really sucks right now, but guess what? There is hope. You can get through this. We've seen people do it. We've seen people in your own family do this, and they've made it through. Like, don't give up. Hang in there. How do we face change? Yeah, 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 you, you hang in there. You hang in there, and you know that God's going to handle it because God can make anything out of the mess. And so then Matthew, Matthew closes his genealogy of Jesus with the story of Joseph. And so it, it, he's showing us this historical line of the Messiah runs through this guy named Joseph, who is in fact not the biological father of Jesus. You see, Matthew is not telling us a biography of Jesus. What he's telling us is a story of faith. The genealogy is a story of a faith. And it's not just a story of a faith. It's a story of a tested faith. So after the genealogy, Matthew puts, uh, uh, puts his focus on the story of Joseph. Right? His nativity story doesn't focus on Mary. Luke focuses on Mary. Uh, uh, Matthew here focuses on Joseph. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Okay, so Joseph is a righteous man. He's faithful to the law. So when he finds out that his betrothed is pregnant and it's not his, he is kind but he is also following the convention and expectation of society at that time. He doesn't want to ruin the, risk ruining his family's honor by going through the situation, but at the same time, he doesn't want to make an outcast of this woman who he thinks at this time has betrayed him. It, it, it's, it's in this moment, it's almost, like, it's almost like he has his own personal temple whose foundations are being shook a little bit. And so he's having to wrestle with, what, what do I do, right? His, his life and faith, this temple, are being shaken. 
And what he decides in this moment, what it looks like is, well, he gives in, he gives in to tradition, right? He gives in to the tradition. I'm going to divorce her quietly. But then an angel of the Lord shows up and starts to tell him, like, hey, Joseph, not so fast. Like, you're not off the hook. Actually, you need to stay. You need to raise this baby as your own. Take Mary as your wife, this whole thing. So he raises this baby as his own. And in doing so, even though this whole situation and what he does flies in the face of law and tradition, in doing so, Joseph becomes an incredibly powerful example of what it means to have faith and trust in the middle of difficulty. Think about the courage that it would take to be able to do this. He has no idea what will happen because of his decision. What he does goes against law and tradition. Like this situation with Mary has so much potential to create all sorts of turmoil in his life. Like what what do you do, but the angel told me I should do this, but that's going to cause a lot of problems, and it's not my kid, and society will be judged, and all these things are working against me. How do you face change? Well, Matthew would say through the story of Joseph, you face it through like faith and trust. Because what does he do? Verse, verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home and his wife. The people of Antioch need to see and hear this example that they might be reminded to stay open to the messages of God. The angel shows up and says, no, 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 actually, I'm going to need you to do this other thing instead. Stay open to the spirit that will show up to lead and guide. Stay open to the thing that God might be doing in that moment. When you think everything's falling apart, there may be, God may be sending these messengers, these these messages to you to let you know where it is you should go and what it is you, you should do. Even though you may be filled with fear, even though you may have these voices of other people and traditions that keep contradicting where God seems to be leading, through Joseph, we see this idea of having the faith and trust to move forward. Trust the call in the face of adversity. Keep climbing the mountain. Now, this is all just like chapter one, and I've cut, like, you're welcome, is what I'm saying. I've cut so much out of this. <laughs> and I mean, unless, I got a couple hours, we can, no? Okay. Yeah, we're hungry. We're hungry, aren't we? We're getting hungry. Communion on me. Anyways, okay. uh, So uh, let's get to the next thing. Uh, Let's get into chapter two. I'm going to skip some stuff. We're going to go a little bit quicker, but just stay with me here because this is fascinating. Chapter two. Uh, After Jesus, uh, uh, Matthew chapter two. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one uh, who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. We've come to worship him. So Matthew, in this passage, he highlights King Herod historically, who would have been a very dangerous figure. He also highlights the magi coming from the east, and he highlights the the, the sighting of this new star. Couple things about this, okay? Stay with me here. Couple things about this. The magi are known as like the wise ones at the time. They're the one you seek counsel and advice from. They, they, uh, it says they were coming from the east, okay? What does something coming from the east signify? The east signifies the rising of the sun. Something new is coming. A new day is being born. But also at this time, when, when, the, when the priests, prior to this time, when the priests would offer their morning sacrifices, the altar would face, they would face east to offer their morning sacrifices before the Lord. So the east represents this new beginning, but it also is connected to some of this tradition that they're trying to kind of 
leave behind. So, so the east represents this hope rising in the face of the darkness. So this little line, the Magi came from the east, it's connecting to, it's, it's connecting to like the ending of an old system, the sacrificial system, along with the beginning of something new. And so what does this group of displaced Messianic Jews living in Antioch who've had their world torn apart because of the destruction of the temple, what is it that they might be looking for in the birth story of the Messiah? What is it they might need to hear as their world is crumbling? Well, that this Messiah is the beginning of something new. This Messiah is the hope rising out of the darkness. Pretty cool. And not only that, but there was a belief at this time that, that, that people, when you were born, that people each received a star when you were born. Did you notice it says, uh, can we pull that verse back up? It says, the Magi, uh, they saw, uh, next, next one, uh, when we, we saw his star when it rose. Like, oh, this is, this is kind of part of the general thinking at the time, which is, is interesting, and we'll come back to that in a second. I just want to put this in your mind, because when it says his star, right, the thought was when people were born, they got this star, and it was like a guiding spirit. It was like the guardian, what we might call like a guardian angel, something divine that's connected to you that's kind of leading and guiding you. Okay, we get to, we're going to skip ahead to the end of the story here. When they saw the, stor- the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they b- bowed down and worshipped him. Then they, took, uh, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Okay, now, a bunch of stuff happening in here as well. So let's talk about the gifts of Magi, and then we'll talk about the star again. So the gold, frankincense, and myrrh are powerful, symbolic messages. They're powerful, symbolic gifts. These gifts that they brought from the east, the place of new beginnings, the place of hope out of the darkness, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh are all references to the great temple, the temple that was destroyed. Frankincense and myrrh are essential components for temple, like important temple rituals. The, 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 the resin of the myrrh was added to the oil used for uh, the royal and priestly anointings. The frankincense was burned only for the highest of sacrificial offerings, and the gold was like what they used to make all the temple vessels and tools and stuff like this. So do you see what Matthew is doing here? He is symbolically transferring the components of the old physical temple to the feet of the infant baby Jesus, the one who would become the Messiah. Jesus, who is the bringer of the new, who is the bringer of this inner temple. Matthew is making it clear through these gifts who Jesus is, where he has come from, and what God is doing, what, that God is doing this new thing, that he is God's new way. This is the message that the people receive, the people who have lost their temple, who are looking for a temple, and now Matthew is writing this in such a way that they are given a whole new vision for a whole different kind of temple. Now, here's the little cool thing about the star. Like, okay, so the Magi follow the star. The star represents this divine guide or internal guidance. And even within this, there's like this really cool kind of message, right? So the word, I just learned this this week. I never heard this. Maybe you heard it. I know most of you, some of you are smarter than me. Um, there, there was this, uh, the word for uh, disaster, disaster, like the original like intent meaning of that means, it literally means dis star, to separate yourself from one's star. 
right? So we face disaster when we separate ourselves from this deeper divine wisdom, when we don't follow the lead of God, when we don't follow the lead of the divine. So disaster is to dis-star. That's pretty good, right? Like, we, 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 should, we should do something for this at Christmas. I'm like, maybe we should just revisit, and that would be, be like Christmas. Like, so it's just fascinating to me to separate ourselves from one's, uh, like, God's inner guidance. Now, after the, Magi, uh, after the Magi leaves, the angel shows up, tells Joseph, hey, I need you to take your family. I need you to get out of here, go to Egypt for a while. A lot of stuff there that we're not going to get into today. But again, all these little details all along the way that we maybe kind of skip over, all of the original audience would have been hearing this. They would have been speaking. They would have been picking up on all of this. And it's all attempt, an attempt to answer this question of how do we face change. So we get into chapter 3, and John is in the wilderness. And he's baptizing people in the Jordan River. Okay? This isn't like Christian baptism. This is like Jewish baptism, which is like a ritualistic cleansing. It's also known as, as a mikvah. This is not what like, Christian baptism is about. Now, what's interesting is he's baptizing in the Jordan River, and some people believe it's like the same area, if not the exact spot, where the Israelites would have crossed the Jordan to enter into the Promised Land. They've wandered for 40 years. They crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So here's John baptizing people in the Jordan River, which would remind them, again, about the tested faith of their ancestors. Okay, again, a lot of stuff in here. It's all intended to send this message, how do we face change? It's all about letting go of the old comforts. It's all about accepting our own insecurities. It's all about moving us forward. So John the Baptist, his message in the Gospel of Matthew is repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's, it's this message of stop clinging to the past. It's a stop clinging to what was and allow yourself to be open to the new thing that's in front of you. And so then we have this incredible scene where Jesus shows up and, and has himself be baptized by John, right? John doesn't want to do it at first, but Jesus is like, you need to do this. It's important. So watch what happens. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The NASB translates verse 17 this way, and I like this one as well. Uh, next one, please. Uh, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. So Jesus enters into this water. He's baptized by John. He comes out of the water. He sees the spirit of God descending upon him like a dove. Now, where else in the history of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, would they have like, been introduced to the concept or the idea of a, of a dove? What story would they have with a dove alighting on somebody? Maybe, maybe like the story of Noah, where there was this flood that covered the earth, and then Noah was sending out these birds, and he sends out the doves, and then on that last time, the dove returns with the olive branch in its beak. It's a sign of what? It's a sign of something new. The promise is a sign of new land, a sign of something new happening. And so after the, the story of the flood, this devastation of the earth being covered by water, the dove appears with the branch to signify this new beginning. This imagery, Jesus going into the baptism, this is what he's, he's relying upon, like being baptized in Jordan. He's taken under the water, spread up to new life. He's in the Jordan, which signifies this crossing into the new land. You see, it's all this, Matthew's gospel is about this ending that leads to these new beginnings. This imagery 
would have deeply resonated with the Jewish community who's been displaced to Antioch. Matthew is offering this fresh vision for this group of people who are struggling with the changes that they have had to endure. And what you have to understand is this group of people, believe it or not, I know this is hard to understand, but the people didn't all see the destruction of the temple the same way. There was like a lot of different opinions. I know it's tough to... Like there were some people that thought like the, the destruction of the temple was like a signal that it was the end of the world. It was the end times. So they were like freaking out everything. God is just going to d- destroy everything. Then you had the Pharisees that believed that, that the destruction of the temple was essentially God's wrath for a lack of religious observance. Then you had the group of people that were like unsure, like we don't know what this is. We don't know what to do. There's just a bit confusion, bit of a, a bit of a fear. Then you have the Messianic Jews who believe that Jesus was the Messiah who are now trying to figure out like what the Messiah expects them to do in the wake of the loss of the temple. So when you have this imagery of the dove descending upon Jesus, this would have been a strong image, especially for those who thought the destruction of the temple meant it's the end of the world. Oh, wait a second, the dove, new beginning. Oh, something, something's happening here. So Jesus enters the, river, uh, the Jordan River, the river that the ancestors crossed into the promised land. He's taken on the water, he's baptized, and then... Just like the dove returned to Noah to signify the new beginning, the dove descends upon Jesus, and the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son with who I am well pleased. It's like Matthew is saying to the people, man, I know it's tough right now. I know you may feel lost. You may feel frustrated. You may feel afraid. But I need you to know that it's not the end. You may have to let go of some of that temple thinking. But if you can do that, if you will move beyond the idea that the presence of God is limited to the temple, if you can be open to the new thing that I'm trying to get you to see, you put yourself in a position to allow the Spirit of God to awaken within you. And it's in this place that you come to know that you are the beloved. What a beautiful message. At least to me, I, I, I hear this and I see this and I think, wow. Wow. Because like, here's the thing, when you're really going through some, some stuff in life, when you're like really facing the struggle of change, the struggle of climbing the mountain, isn't this the kind of words that you need to hear? Don't you need to hear? Don't you want to hear something like this? It's not the end. You are not alone. You are a beloved child of God. It's not the end. You are not alone. You are a beloved child of God. You will never be alone. Right? Like, ah, ah, yeah. I mean, we're like only three chapters into this, and we've just kind of been glossing over the surface here. I mean, we went heavy into the temple. I'm sorry, but it's good. Like, this, this is like some profound, life-changing stuff. Matthew's writing to these people, dealing with this deep hurt, this deep loss, the destruction of the temple, asking the question, how do we face change? And think about what we've heard so far, just in the little bits that we've covered. Think about what we've, we've heard so far. If you're these people wrestling with how do we face change, or should I say, 
as you ask this question of how do you face change, think about what we've heard with this. He opens with the genealogy, and there's this message of remember who you are. You are God's people. There's this message of uh, like even though you've gone through this mess, even though your ancestors have gone through this mess, God is still working. God still worked through them to bring the Messiah. There's this message of a tested faith that leads to the Savior of the world. And then you have the story of Joseph and, and the uh, the potential turmoil of Mary's pregnancy. And in Joseph's picture, we see, this, we, we see this example of faith and trust and moving forward. And then you have the story of the Magi coming from the east, following the star, bringing their gifts with this message of a new beginning and a new hope that arises out of the darkness. And then you have this encouragement to follow that inner guidance, that God's inner guidance, that star. Follow that. And then you have the baptism of Jesus, which is another story of new beginnings. We see a message of repentance, turning from the old ways, allowing God's spirit to wake and awaken within you so that you will come to know that you are the beloved and that you will never be alone. So how do you face change? Like all of that, right? Like all of that, that's, take that with you, carry that with you. This is all, this is what the whole book is doing the whole time and it's phenomenal. All of that, yeah. We're just in three chapters, do you see how powerful of a message this stuff is? Like, how many of us are going through some stuff right now, and you need to hear this stuff, this message? How many of you are sitting here thinking, man, I wish I would have heard that when I was going through this stuff last month, last year, whatever. That would have been helpful. I could have really used that. Yeah, of course. This is the beauty of the scripture, the power of this fourfold journey that we're talking about. This is the power of the word of God that is alive and active. Matthew gives us all these examples about how life can be difficult sometimes, but he's also trying to get us see, to see what will happen if we remain open to God's leading through the difficulty, through those dark places, through those difficult places, through those uncomfortable places. Even those places have the ability to bring us this great gift, this gift of God. Matthew reminds us that even when our temple is destroyed, even when it feels like life is falling apart, it is not the end. You are not alone, and you are loved. So keep, keep climbing. Keep climbing. Yeah, it's not going to be easy. Eh, keep climbing. Keep climbing. What I want to do today is, is before we get into communion, I'd like for us to do like a I'd like first to read a, a, a passage together. I want to first read Psalms 121, because this is an incredible psalm, and I think it can kind of serve as like a prayer for us for this week and next week. We may do this again next week. I want us to recite this together, and, and hopefully this will be something that will like speak to your heart, speak to your mind. Hopefully this will be something that if you're going through some stuff, that you can take this with you. If you're not, if things are okay right now, put this in your back pocket, keep it for later, because eventually you will need it. So let's read this, and then we'll go into our communion, okay? So Psalms 21, if you would read this with me, it's going to be on the screen. Okay. <clears throat> I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Hey, let's pause, just real quick. How powerful is that? How many of us have gone through some stuff, and you're looking for answers for just like, God, I got it. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. 
I lift my eyes up to the mountains. It's, you know, I, it's, I, I just have to, I'm, I'm trying to sort through this. Where does my help come from? I think this is an honest question. I don't think this is like just somebody writing because they're trying to make, I think this is a deep wrestling of somebody that's going through some stuff. Like I connect to that. You've never, you've had that moment where you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know what the next step is. I don't know where this is. Yeah, let's, let's start over. I messed it up. I'm sorry. Let's start over. Psalms 121. Okay, here we go. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Well, I don't know about you, but that was that was very enlightening and eye-opening. I learned a lot, and um, I don't know about you, but that helps me sort of put some things in context, uh, maybe that they that they had less context before, and uh, that's something I think is going to happen quite a bit throughout this series. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you're looking forward to it as well. Uh, I thought it would be a fun thing in this series to to do something a bit different, and so um, each week as we end the podcast, I'm gonna. I'm going to play you out with a different song. This may be completely dumb, uh, but I think it might be fun. And I hope you enjoy this song about mountains as we end our time together today. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is old there, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing like a breeze. Country road, take me home to the place I belong. West Virginia, mountain mama, take me home. Country roads, all my memories gather round her. Miner's lady, stranger to blue water, dark and dusty, painted on the sky. Misty taste of moonshine, teardrop in my eye. Country road, take me home to the place I belong. West Virginia, mountain mama, take me home. Country road, I hear her voice in the morning, how she calls me. Radio reminds me of my home far away. 
Driving down the road, I get a feeling that I should have been home yesterday. Yesterday, country road, take me home to the place I belong, West Virginia. Mountain Mama, take me home, country roads, take me home, down country roads, take me home, down country roads. All right, we'll see you next time. Have a great week.